Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Wonder Capital. Invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. by investing in Wonder Capital's solar funds. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash money. That's wonder with a U. Do well and do good. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash slate money and using the promo code slate money. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. Hello, and welcome to the Thrack You edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined as ever by the one and only Kathy O'Neill, math babe extraordinaire, blogger, data scientist, and general all-around hug provider. It's true. It's true. Thank you. I'm, well, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. And I am joined by not one but two Slate Moneybox columnists. We have, of course, Jordan Wiseman. Hello. But we also have the OG Moneybox, the man who created the storied franchise, the man who basically set the bar which no one has subsequently heard of. Thanks, Felix. Thanks. The one and only <laughs> Jim Surowicki. Say hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, uh, now you are, you are now, um, you've managed to burrow away into a nice little cozy corner of the New Yorker for how long now? Uh, 16 years, I guess. You know, I actually, st- I was thinking about it when we're going to be talking about uh, oil and uh, gas bankruptcies and, and uh, they were comparing them to the telecom bubble bursting. And I actually started at the New Yorker in March of 2000, which was literally the month that the NASDAQ peaked. So it's so Wiki gets hired at the New Yorker and whoosh, the bubble just bursts. Basically, and, and, as and we so, know, correlation so, is causation. Yes, it is causation. <laughs> and it was a sign that you know. It, yeah. So basically, it took about four months for for Remnick to regret this hire. Probably, and, and well, we got lucky stuck with Ron Wilcom. Yeah, stuck there around ever go. since. Stuck around ever since. Um, 
So, so yeah, Jim Sorowiecki, who's managed to stay at the New Yorker for 16 years, which is probably about, like, your sort of kindergartner by New Yorker standards, <laughs> exactly. um, is going to help us talk about um, one of my favorite subjects, which we talked about very briefly last week, but we got I then got into a fight with him about on Twitter, so we... we oh, good, him, fight. We dragged him in so that we could, we could have this fight on air instead of just on Twitter. Um, as he says, we're going to look at oil industry bankruptcies we're also going to look at arbitration clauses and guess what guys you can sue your bank now which is i don't know if you if this is something which anyone is actually excited about being able to do but it's a good thing i'm very excited we're going to talk about suing banks but first we are going to pick up where i left off last week which was in the numbers round i mentioned that very soon Two-thirds of Facebook shares are going to be non-voting shares. They're going to have no voting rights whatsoever. And this is a new and rather worrying development, if you're me. Um, I don't think that it bodes well for public companies if most of the shares carry no votes. And Jim came out on Twitter and said... Don't be silly. The way capitalism works is you put out whatever securities you want with whatever fine print you want, and then if you don't like them, you can sell them. Is that more or less your view? It's a little more complex than that, but but <laughs> it's the way I would think about it is that uh, the dominant mode of registering disapproval or – well, let's say registering disapproval in capitalism is you exit, you leave, you sell your shares if you don't like what Zuckerberg is doing at Facebook or you don't buy the shares if you don't like uh, what you think Facebook is is going to become. Um, that's very different from democracy where the main way we register discontent is by actually voting and by theoretically lobbying people, et cetera. That's you know, usually called voice. And I just think in the case of Facebook – um, well, do you want to explain any more about how it works or not? Okay, so w- what we've had for a long time now um, is that certain companies very very frequently in the media sector have dual share classes. And they have one set of shares which has a lot of votes, normally like five or ten times as much voting power as another set of shares. So the Salzburgers, for instance, have powerful voting shares which allow them to control the New York Times even though they don't own the majority of the shares in the New York Times. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has control of News Corp and, and 21st Century Fox even though he doesn't own the majority of them. Again, thanks to these super voting shares. Um, but what none of them had done was create non-voting shares. There was always like you get fewer votes or you get more votes. But then Google came along a couple of uh, years ago and said, we're going to go one further. We already have this dual class structure. They had the A shares and the B shares where the founders had way more control than their percentage ownership of the company would imply. But that wasn't enough for them. They then created this new class of C shares, which they could literally print billions of without diluting their control at all. And everyone kind of looked at them, puzzled as it said and said, is this legal? And there were there was a court case and they won the court case. And now they can dilute their ownership as much as they like without diluting their control. And this was a weirdly idiosyncratic Google thing until um, Facebook came along. Well, there was one other company in between recently, which I discovered uh, did the same ABC thing, which is Under Armour. Under Armour's CEO is this guy 
um, Mike Plank or something Plank. Is it Mike? Yeah, I think his name is Mike. I think his name is Mike. He's he's the, he had this bright idea that he was going to pivot from being a shoe company or you know underwear company or whatever the hell he was into a technology company because every company is a technology company. So he spent a billion dollars <laughs> on apps like My Fitness Pal, and so in order to be able to dilute. Um, his ownership share by 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 spending that much money on apps without diluting his control of the company. He did this this non voting C share thing, which now Mark Zuckerberg was like, "Ooh, that looks good. I want that." So Felix, I, I took a look at the article you wrote about this, and you actually sound a lot calmer right now in the studio than you did in, in uh, you know in print and pixels. Because your anxieties about Zuckerberg didn't, you know, having basically total control over his company, no matter how much of his shares he sold, seemed to extend beyond just his ability to control Facebook. It was almost like you're talking about being like a, a threat to the republic in some sense. Well, can I jump in I, here? I almost expected like Kanye's power to come on, like no one, <laughs> no one man. I mean, it specifically you talked about his ability to um, basically print money, as you put it, by you know issuing more stock. I guess I, I just want a, cl- a better sense of why that makes you so nervous. Like, why is his ability to issue stock and and you know buy other companies really make you so anxious? Yeah, ang- ang- like why are you so anxiety driven? Can that? I can I jump in and suggest a reason that I'm nervous? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's you know we've talked we talked about the eurozone a couple of weeks ago, so we all, we all know about the 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 sort of setting up something that works really well in good times, but then doesn't work so well in bad times. So my question about this C-share situation is, in the situation where, like, obviously, if everyone loves Mark Zuckerberg and everyone loves Google and they think they make uh, the people in charge and the people in control make really good decisions, this is not a problem. And it looks like they're legally allowed to do this. But the question is, when they start making decisions that people don't like, how volatile does a stock get? Like, does it just, do people just totally jump off the wagon? Does the market move really quickly? Because Mark Zuckerberg made some weird this, mistake. This is, I mean, depending on who you ask, this is a feature rather than a bug. Um, the whole point of being able to retain control is so that you can make long-term decisions without worrying about the short-term effect on the share price. And so you can withstand the kind of volatility. And both Google and Facebook, in the wake of their IPOs, kind of went in the wrong direction. And it took them a while to um, to become the sort of market darlings that they did become. But you're absolutely right. There is one thing which Google and Facebook and Under Armour have in common, which is that all three of them waited until they had enormous tailwinds before they tried this stunt. Um, all three of them, like Google and Facebook are part of the famous fang stocks which have been outperforming massively and everyone loves, and so they can get away with just about anything right now. Under Armour waited until they until like the height of the Steph Curry craze. Under, Under Armour, the single most crazy, lucky, fortunate thing in the history of that company was that Nike dropped the ball on Steph come on Steph Curry. Under Armour comes in as second choice and picks him up, and now they have the greatest you know basketball player of all time or something. And I think Bryce making, Harper is also a big fan of Under Armour. Yeah. Uh, and so, but the, but you're absolutely right that the main the main thing that's happening here is that these companies are doing something in good times, which people would be tearing their hair out if anyone tried to do this in bad times. I mean, if Rupert Murdoch tried to create a new class of non-voting shares right now, or if the Salzburgers tried to create a, a class of non-voting shares right now, I don't think people would be quite as sanguine. 
I mean, I think there's a few things here. One is I think you're exaggerating the difference between the new plan and the dual class share structure that already existed. Zuckerberg already had total control in some sense over over Facebook. This allows him to sell off his shares theoretically um, and theoretically he wants to do it in order to be able to – uh, fund this 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 philanthropic endeavors without um, without losing control. But in terms of his ability or not ability to deal with Facebook, that hasn't changed at the moment. Now, the broader question you're trying to raise is: Is it fair for someone who only owns five percent of the company to have hundred percent control, one percent or point five percent? Because right. with zero vote, like that's the difference between non-voting shares and you know, super voting shares is sure. non, like you can multiply non-voting shares by a million and they still have zero votes. Sure. So my answer to that question is that there are two ways to think about it. One is, is it bad for Facebook, right? Is it bad for the company? And that we can argue about. Is it bad for Zuckerberg not to have any checks? I think you could argue that it's bad for CEOs to have no checks at all. But uh, the people I think who are best qualified to make that decision are Facebook shareholders. If they think it's a terrible decision, they can just dump their shares. You don't have a legal right to own Facebook shares and to have them always be there the way you, you wanted them to be. So if you're not happy, there's nothing keeping you from, from selling your shares. The second question, though, which is what I think Jordan was trying to was saying, is that you make it you also make it sound like it's bad for the economy generally. And I would argue that actually what we want is you want corporations to be – it's fine to have corporations have different structures um, as long as they're straightforward about it. So as, if a, the way I think about this and the reason why I think it's actually not a bad thing that Facebook is doing this is that it opens the door or – makes it allows it makes it easier for companies to adopt different goals right so if a company says you know what um we're uh, just going to we're we're, uh, we're going to you know we want to make money but a big part of our business is also doing good um if you follow the like shareholder value maximization thing that company maybe not is not able to do that basically, right? Because shareholders are going to say, no, wait a second, we're not happy with that. But if instead you say the company was upfront about it when you bought the shares, you know, you knew when you became a shareholder what the rules were, so you don't have a legal case, then companies can do lots of different things. And that's what I think the idea here is. I think when you buy into the myth that shareholders are owners, then you end up with a situation where maximizing shareholder value is the yeah. only goal yeah, of companies. I, mean, I was going to say – to me, Facebook just looks like a hybrid of a private and public company. Yeah, exactly. It, it looks like a hybrid of a close. It's like it functions like a closely held company, but other people can buy into it if they think that that Facebook's going to you know take off and continue to dominate the world. Why that is necessarily terrible for you know anyone else is you know again it, it might have a be well a okay if I you can, bought I, into Facebook previously. I can tell you qual- qualitatively, it's different. I mean, fa- Mark Zuckerberg had control of facebook in like when it was two years old and he only owned 25 percent of the company even then and they got a billion dollar acquisition offer from yahoo and he said i control the company i'm saying no and that kind of long-term thinking was good back then and what i'm saying is there's a qualitative difference between running having having 25 percent of a one billion dollar company and having five percent of a 350 billion dollar company and at some point giving one man dictator for life powers over uh what's probably going to be four or five hundred billion dollar company starts being scary one of the things that he can do now 
is that he can print as much stock as he likes to buy as many companies companies as he likes, which can be worth even more than Facebook. He could go out and buy a trillion dollars worth of other companies and still retain control over all of them and pay for them all in this non-voting stock. And he could buy, let me just like take this to its logical conclusion, every single publicly listed news organization in the world, which would be willing to sell to him. And if he just prints enough stock, eventually they will be because it's money and they have a fiduciary obligation. He can control all of the media in the world himself and no one can vote him out. I, I'm not saying he's going to do this, but take this to its logical conclusion. And this is not good. So I, I do want to bring up one technical point there. And I just want to throw in well, that I love Felix right now. Yeah. Well, no, so correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is actually companies do have a limited number of shares they can actually sell. That when you when you register your company, there are only so many. Yes, and stocks. then what, what Facebook yeah. just did in its latest proxy yeah. was multiply that number by about 20. And, I, it, and Facebook can continue to multiply that number as many times as it likes. Oh, it can continue to yes. increase I just want to also... So I, I, there's I, no I, point where it gets diluted, the value that, like... there. The value like, gets diluted every single time, but okay. the control does not. That's my point. Okay, so he can... but. So at, point, at some point, he could theoretically in this world where he's buying everything, like the stock would drop. Of course, the stock thing. is plummeting yeah, as this yeah, happening. Yeah, yes. that, that's what I'm saying. The, so, the stock is yeah. going down in price. The shareholders are miserable, but they can't do anything it's about it. Sh- but he also his, – his wealth is also being radically diminished yeah, and yes, in this he model. He has already demonstrated that he doesn't care about his wealth because he's giving it 99% but, of it away wait, anyway. What about, what about all the companies he's buying with the stock that's suddenly worthless? I'm just saying yeah. we've entered sci-fi Guys, here. can we imagine a world <laughs> – uh, where we don't have maximized shareholder value as the only goal, but we do have stock like shareholders influence in some measured way on what companies do. I sure. Is, is I that mean, possible? It's really yeah, I mean, hard to get there. But we do we do have it. I mean, companies that register as benefit corporations. So, uh, in principle, you know, if you want to go public, you can register as a benefit corporation. Um, and in theory, it's in your charter that some part of your corporate but mission. Corp, no, there's wait, plenty wait, of companies I, that just don't care that much no, about no, the wait, quarterly results. Jim, you're going the other way. Like the whole point about registering as a benefit corporation is you say we. It's in our charter that we have to act in the interests of this interest book group sure. and that interest group and the other interest group. What Facebook is doing is it's going entirely the other way and saying we don't have to act in the interest of absolutely anyone except for the whims of one man. No, no, but that was very clear. I mean, this is the thing I was saying about contracts. I mean, both Facebook and Google uh, were very clear. I mean, they were set up as dual class structures. They were set up from the start so that the founders were going to be able to keep control of the company. So I don't feel like there's been any uh, bad faith here between of the companies and things. Well, I mean, they created a whole new class of shares, which was not in how they were set up. So that's bad faith for starters. But see, I guess to me, I think your 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 entire frame for thinking about this is wrong, which is you're thinking about shareholders as the equivalent of citizens in a in a no, go, in a democracy. No, I am not. Well, you are. Like, no, Jim, I have never once said that the shareholders own the company. I don't know why you think that I'm saying that, but I have because never said that. Because you keep that. talking about about things being anti-democratic and dictatorship and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's more That's all premised. That That's all premised on some analogy between the the running of a corporation and the running yeah, of right. a Yeah, right. What I'm thing. saying is that there is always someone there, – there are always checks and balances in terms of who controls the corporation. There's a CEO who's answerable to someone, the chairman. The chairman is answerable to someone, the shareholders. Like there's some, there's some kind of way in which the person running the company – is answer, like either you control the either you control the shares or like the shareholders control you in some sense. And face 
book is now an almost unique exception to that rule. There are no checks and balances. It is a dictatorship of one man, and it is very rare, if not unprecedented, except for the single president of Under Armour, to find that. Now, let me let me just. I'm, we're running a little bit out of time here. This was this was illegal between the mid twenties and nineteen eighty six, when for some reason it became legal again. But back in the twenties, we went through this. And there was this wonderful poem which I have to dig up from one a New York newspaper, New York World wrote this excellent poem. Then you who drive the fractious nail, and you who lay the heavy rail, and all who bear the dinner pail and daily punch the clock, shall it be said your hearts are stone? They are your brethren, and they groan. Oh, drop a tear for those who own non-voting corporate stock. So that is actually, <laughs> but that's actually a good point, right? I mean, that's actually a good. I think that's actually a great poem because what it actually speaks to is the problem that uh, you know workers have no say in the way enterprise their enterprises run. What they Basically, do in Germany, we yeah, talked about that a lot. Exactly. So what I would say is actually that. Uh, Again, I think that the problem is you're thinking, you know, if I own a, a let's say I run a closely held corporation, right? And I take on investors. If I say to them, you're going to be a silent partner, literally, you're not going to have any say in how I run this company. No one has any problem with that. You understand you're investing in the company because you're betting on the company. That's basically all these, you don't have to buy non-voting stock. You don't have to no, the fake current Facebook shareholders don't have to keep their stock. They can sell it if they want. It's that's the check, and it's the same check as – I mean I mentioned this when we had but, our but, Twitter But, but it's a check which has no practical impact on the dictator for life. We have actually seen this in the case of Google, which issued its C-shares, which an, in terms of cash flow identically valued to the A-shares and the B-shares. But they have been trading since issue at a significant discount because well, – Significant, I mean 0.2%. Well, it's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not significant. It's maybe statistically trivial. significant, but it's not very large. And I mean, I also, as I said in my when we had this, the Twitter discussion, I, I don't really understand. You know, no one has any. Well, most people don't have any problems that with a mutual fund or a hedge fund, you give the guy your money, and the hedge fund manager can do whatever he wants with it. There's no check on him except for you know he has a board, I guess. But there's no check on what Bill. I, I saw the big can do. I saw the big sure. Oh, sure. I, there, I, there's I, definitely people like <laughs> twisting the arms of hedge fund managers, telling them that they're doing it. Sure, wrong. they can. But the same would be true in Zuckerberg. But the check is, if you don't do the right thing, I'm going to pull my money. And that's the exact same check that there's going to be on Zuckerberg. I don't know. It's not clear to me why it's different with it's a corporation than a hedge fund. It's different fund. with Zuckerberg because he has already made it clear that he doesn't care about the money. Well, that seems kind of like a concrete critique of, of an abstract. What you know, Twitter, it's only 140 characters, but this is much longer than that. <laughs> yeah, this, yes. All right. We, we, must, we, must, we must wrap this one up. I, I'm, I want, I'm going to be fighting with Jim for years about this one, I'm sure. Um, so... We're going to move on to oil bankruptcies. Before we move on to oil bankruptcies, I'm going to tell you that you do not want to be buying Facebook stock because that only, um, what does it do? Encourages it only him. encourages the dictator for life, Mr. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. And, and, you, and I'm sure the same thing goes for Under Armour as well. I have another investment for you. It's called Wonder, which is solar panels, basically. And you can get up to 11% returns if you lend money to people who invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. It's green, and it's Wonder Capital with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R. And if you go to wondercapital.com slash money, um, 
you will learn all manner of wonderful things about solar panels. This is not an endorsement, but you should check it out anyway. Um, Jordan, I've noticed in the past few years that the oil price has been declining. Slightly, just a little bit. Um, Has there been any consequences of this in the corporate world? There have been some consequences of this in the corporate world, Felix. Uh, Namely, a whole bunch of bankruptcies. Uh, This was easily foreseen. Um, There have now been 59 oil and gas bankruptcies during this oil route, which is, uh, as Reuters noted, creeping up on the number of telecom bankruptcies that happened in the early 2000s when that industry kind of exploded after a period of irrational exuberance. Um, So it gives you a sense of, you know, that the punch bowl's gone, the party's over, people are turning off the lights. Um, And there are technical things I think this tells us about the oil and gas industry that we can get into. But, you know, what I would like to discuss more broadly is does anyone actually is anyone actually worried about this because I for one actually I'm not if anything I think this is part of a natural process that might be good for the economy overall so I, I look at waves of bankruptcies and what I see is capitalism basically not working um, because bankruptcy is a messy and time-consuming and expensive way of changing ownership basically the companies don't disappear when they go bankrupt they uh, or the assets of the companies don't disappear the oil rigs still exist the refineries still exist but what happens is that the shareholders no longer own them i know that jim is going to start telling me that they never owned them in the first place and they, they just they just had a residual claim on cash exactly. flows um but but the, the shareholders no, no longer own them. The, the shareholders get wiped out. And then what happens is the bondholders have the mother of all fights about who gets to do a dip finance and and who, wind, you know, you do some kind of debt for equity swap. And then the bond, some class of bondholders becomes the new class of equity holders. And all of this happens in protracted and expensive litigation, during which time the actual operations of the company and the workers of the company, um, often the workers are, are often treated very badly in these periods, that you often have a much higher chance of layoffs. And if you didn't have that much leverage to begin with, and, and bankruptcies are entirely a function of leverage, basically. If there's no debt, then you never go bankrupt. If you're just funded by equity, you never go bankrupt. And you only go bankrupt when you have more and more debt and less and less equity. So what what we've seen happen here was greedy commodities people loading up their companies with way too much debt, wiping out that thin sliver of equity, and then causing a bunch of chaos across the oil belt, which does no good to anyone. Can, can I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said, but I still kind of think that that's, that means that capitalism is working. I mean, given that, given how the greed and all the debt, which I agree with, like, what are the alternatives at this moment? I guess the alternative is like, extend and pretend, you know. And, no, no, no. You know, I mean, if, if you have that much leverage, then it's inevitable in the event of an oil price crash that you're going to get bankruptcies. What I'm saying is, you don't start with given insane amounts of leverage. You right. start with you should never have levered these companies up so this that much. To okay, we're on the same page. So, so, but I mean, I think. But if they hadn't, I mean, one of the issues is if they hadn't been able to borrow all that money, then they would never have been able to drill. I mean, they were never going to be able to fund the massive expansion we saw in the oil belt via via equity. I think. Yeah. Now the interesting uh, question. Wait, wait, can you expand on that? Well, I just think that I mean they raised what is it like three hundred fifty billion or so? Is it, there, there was an that? enormous amount of debt to 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 get that from the equity markets, considering especially how many of these are small, small companies. companies. We're talking right. wildcat drillers. These are not yeah. companies that are going to easily uh, raise equity as easily as they are going to raise debt. And okay, wait, wait. So let me just 
again, ask you to expand on this because it's not obvious to me. If I'm a small wildcat driller, why is it easier for me to raise debt than to raise equity? Because I think it's easier. I mean, first of all, because I think the the markets are are better set up. Like the junk bond market, which is what I think was responsible for fifty percent, is in a way set up to fund that kind of stuff. And I think if you think about all the regulatory requirements, which <laughs> you still have to go through to become a public company, et cetera, et cetera, or to I issue think, junk bonds, yeah. they're not that dissimilar. I, I just think if you have me, publicly, it like, it's about having publicly listed securities, and junk bonds are publicly list, listed securities, just like stocks are. No, but but isn't the the amount of work it requires to become a public company and then report quarterly earnings, et cetera, et cetera, just much higher? Although, I mean, how many of these companies I, I work, were public? I'm going to give you an example. No, no. I, I work for a company called Univision, which has publicly listed securities, which are debt securities, and um, it has no publicly listed equity. They're talking about maybe doing an IPO at some point. But for the time being, they still have quarterly earnings. They right. still have quarterly conference calls. They still have to report everything because as soon as you issue public securities, then you become a public company, basically. I just find it very difficult to believe they would have been able to raise $350 billion in the equity markets at least – and maybe this is the bigger issue – is that they would have been able to raise it at the cost of capital they were able to raise it at. Now, the truth is the cost of capital was relatively high in a lot of these cases. I don't know what the junk bond ratings um, were, but – I think the more interesting question is, was the build-out good or bad? So that's actually what I wanted to get to. And, and can, and can yes. I channel the ghost of the money box in between you guys? Because Dan Gross wrote a book called Pop about like why bubbles are good things. And he's like, a bunch of people with money lose money, but in return for that, you get a bunch of real-world investment into things which makes the world better. And so he was saying, yay, bubbles. Right. Um, I'm finding it hard, I have to admit, to try and make this case in the case of the oil and gas industry. Let me jump in just for a second. Let me just jump in for a second. To what extent, and I'm just going to, this is going to add to the the answer you have. To what extent is this just a, a feature of the gas drilling like industry that it takes a lot of investment and a lot of lag time? Well, no. So actually in the American oil belt now, it doesn't. It used to. But the nature of fracking is it takes much less time to do this. And that, I think, has been facilitated somewhat by the debt markets. But anyway, um, one, I mean, there, there are a couple ways you can approach this. First off, there's, there's the question that I think is really interesting of, of can we get meaningful advancements in our economy without bubbles? This is something that Larry Sanders has talked about. There's this whole idea of secular. Larry Summers. Oh, sorry, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> He just Larry, died. He just died. That's uh, right. Your Jesus mind. Christ. <laughs> uh, combining him with, uh, yeah, with Bernie Sanders um, as well. No, so this is something that Larry Summers has talked about. Larry, our favorite on this show. And he has this idea that essentially without, bu- I mean, it's part of his whole sec- sec- secular stagnation theory. And without bubbles, you're not going to get essentially to full employment in the economy. That's that's where his thinking goes with this. So I, th- I think there's this kind of cool macro aspect to this. But beyond that... Wait, wait. How is it cool to create a bubble, create a bunch of jobs in Oklahoma, and then see the bubble burst, and then everyone winds up in Oklahoma the, and The idea is that essentially without a, without some degree of irrational exuberance, the amount the returns on investment are low enough that people are just going to let their, their money sit on the sidelines. And so you need to, people to kind of make bad decisions and pile into a new industry in order to get some sort of 
you know, large scale growth in the economy. Again, this is theoretical, but it's interesting. But beyond that, but, he but, says that's a bad thing, right? Well, I mean, he's a, saying it's that's state, it's it's not good that we're in that situation. Right. But the bubble itself is right. necess, is a necessary evil. But it's a sign of the underlying yeah. structural weakness so, in the economy. So, in a way, the bubble might be the best thing we have going for us, which is for what you know, good or bad. That might be the case. But, Just, but bursting bubbles is never good for you. Well, you but the bubble bubbles are always going to burst at some point. So we need the bubble in order to get some sort of advancement. But the other thing that I think is specific to the oil and gas industry here is that we've seen this drive into it and it's actually created you know, and even the process of the bubble bursting has in some ways, I think, been good for the industry. These companies are learning how to drill for much cheaper prices than they were when they initially were, um, when they when they initially went into the uh, the shale belts. Uh, they're they're better at drilling. And oh, even my God. The, fracking has got even cheaper. That's awesome news. Well, Yay. I think if I mean, if, if yeah, if you're going to bring global, if like if you're upset about, you know, extracting any kind of fossil fuels, then yeah, you don't think that's good. But if you think fossil fuels are a necessary evil for, you know, at least 50 more years, then it actually is a good thing that these companies have learned to produce at fairly low prices. And frankly, it's not as if oil wasn't going to come out of the ground anyway. I, it would I, have been coming from more expensive I sources. I disagree. I think that there's like the, the price of oil, mm -hmm. and you're absolutely right, there's going to be demand for oil for the next 50 years. The price of oil is set by global supply and demand considerations, which are pretty much unrelated to the cost of extracting the oil. So the amount you pay that, for the oil is, to a first approximation, not going to change if the companies drilling it become more efficient. What changes is they make more money. And it is not obviously a good thing for the companies drilling the oil to make more money and for the people being paid to extract the oil to make less money. That is an inaccurate description of how the oil market works right now. The the, the break-even price matters a whole lot for what you know how much oil comes out of the ground and where the oil comes from and the eventual price it's sold at. If a lot of companies can make continue making money at a fairly low price, you're going to have more oil coming out of the ground, even if prices fall, and that's going to keep a level on that's going to keep prices but from I mean, spiking. But I mean, to me, that's the interesting question. Because, you know, so Dan Gross has this theory. Well, I mean, it's it's a familiar theory that the bubbles have been good for the economy in the past. And, and I think you can certainly make that case about the telecom bubble, which is, is you know, the analogy that a lot of people are drawing here. So in, in the late 90s and, and early, well, really just 2000, <laughs> there was this huge build out in telecom. And then there was a massive bust. So hundreds of billions of dollars lost, uh, it, close to a trillion dollars lost in equity value, massive amounts lost in the debt markets. But as a result, we got huge amounts of dark fiber, which at the time was totally unprofitable, but has been crucial to the build out of the U.S. economy. The housing market bubble was clearly terrible. It left us with massive amounts of homes that are never going to be occupied or at best are, are you know, essentially useless. Um, and I think the oil and gas bubble is complicated because it was very good for the U.S. economy. I mean, I can't remember what the numbers are, but in the last two years before the, the bubble burst uh, – Oil and gas accounted for some ridiculously high percentage of total private investment in the United States. It was more than half, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an absurd amount. So it was good for the U.S. economy in that sense. But on the other hand, the obvious consequence of it is that there was a lot more oil on the market. And if you assume that that oil uh, oil demand is somewhat sensitive to supply, that meant people use more oil than they might have otherwise, which is bad for climate change. Yes, and it's thank also, you. And thank it's you. also bad just for the number of people who die, die in car crashes every year. Can I, I mean, just... Yeah. Can I, I just jump in as a climate someone who worries about climate change? Like, can someone please tell me that part of the reason that the 
oil, price of oil is low is because alternative energy is is becoming viable? No. No. Damn. Probably not. No. It's just oversupply, <laughs> no. I think. Yeah. All right. I think that's probably all we have time to, for on oil and gas bubbles bursting. It's you have to get you have to have a little bit of Schadenfreude though, right? For all of these people who p- piled in there with their hundreds of billions of dollars and are losing money, like no one's heart is bleeding for them. Well, yeah. I, you know, one other thing I'd say is, I'm you not know, upset for them. I, like <laughs> I said, I think the bubble bursting's good. Right. The, I mean, the other thing to say is, you know, this isn't exactly new. I mean, if you go back to the early 1980s in Houston yeah. and 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 Texas, you had the exact same thing. You had this huge uh, bubble in investment in oil, and then in '86, price collapse, and then you basically had you know this. But the thing that's interesting in terms of schadenfreude is, of course, at in the early 80s, the rest of the U.S. economy was terrible. But if you were in Texas, you thought you were on top of the world. So when that bubble burst, people were really happy because it was like they got their Okay, so I'm, I'm going to talk about another piece of price deflation, which is, because this is an ad, raises. <laughs> you, you, you... Used to pay through the nose for your raises. Did you not, Jordan Weissman? It's well, I I saved by just going not without, as you can see. As, as <laughs> Jordan today. is sporting a scruffy look today. Yeah, it's it's Jordan, not good Jordan, scruff. Because it's, Jordan hasn't really become part of the, you know, the people using people. Harry's razors every day. <laughs> he is being forced to walk around with a small furry animal on his face. It's true. It looks if, very Brooklyn. Looks if, very Brooklyn. If Jordan were using. Harry's razors every day, he would be beautifully clean shaven and he would be looking handsome and well scrubbed and he would not be spending as much money as one might think it would cost to do that because Harry's razors are much, much cheaper than the kind of razors which you spend $35 on in the corner store. So the way you get your Harry's razors is you go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and what you get is these amazing German-made razors with five blades, which shave really well. And if you sign up for a subscription package they just arrive automatically on your door and that just gives you an incentive jordan to shave a little bit more often which you know you you might be able to feel your chin occasionally it would be amazing so harry harry's razors look good for cheap right don't look like jordan don't look like jordan look good for cheap go to harrys.com and then enter the coupon code money and you'll get five dollars off the starter set, which is um, the not just the razors, but this incredible handle which doesn't slip when it gets wet, and the shave gel and or the shave cream. It's a great little starter set. It's only fifteen dollars, but if you get five dollars off, it's only ten dollars. So that's a kind of no brainer. Go to Harry's.com, put money in at checkout, get the starter set, and be smooth and beautiful. Like Felix. Like, like <laughs> Felix. <laughs> um, okay, Kathy. Yes, that's me. Have you been itching to sue your bank? I have for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I'm really excited about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, what they did this week, because that's the kind of nerd I am. Um, listen, if you take out a payday loan, which you probably would have tried to avoid doing, but if you're desperate for cash and you take out a payday loan, Um, 99% of the time, you're going to have to sign a contract called a forced arbitration contract. Jim, what's that? 
uh, essentially you give up your right to actually sue the bank or the institution. And it's not just banks. It's also cell phone companies, et cetera. You give up the right to sue them uh, in a class action fashion. Basically. And, and let's be clear, banks don't generally offer payday loans, but they do offer a bunch of other financial products which may or may not be illegal. And one way of telling whether they are or are not illegal is to take it to court and ask a judge or jury to decide. Right. And so 53% of credit card issuers do this as well. 44% of checking accounts. It's really a big deal. And it's new. It's it, it's it's like in the, since the 1980s, basically. Um, oh, just like non-voting stock. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, just this week has decided like this is not not okay because it's just too biased against the consumer. Um, it's really exciting news. Um, the New York Times did this study and found that for people who are borrowing money and were uh, subject to these forced arbitration clauses, they basically never actually went to arbitration. It was too expensive. It wasn't worth it for them. And they were only doing it for themselves. They weren't doing it for the, the class of people like them. In fact, they found only 505 consumers even bothered to go to arbitration from 2010 to 2014, which is ridiculous. And moreover, I just I looked this up a little bit, the way this arbitration stuff works. It's super biased against the consumer even if they do bring it to arbitration. Because the arbitrators are paid by the banks. Yes, and the by banks, the businesses. And the banks, well, I mean, it's, it's simple. The banks are going to pick the arbitrator who ruled in favor of them last time. And so if you want to make money as an arbitrator, you learn very quickly that ruling against the banks is going to get you not chosen and you're not going to make any money. And what? you're you're in a room with your lawyer, who's probably not an expert on this stuff, and a bunch of corporate lawyers. It's just totally sacked against well, you. Well, this is that great quote from the judge in one of these cases who said something like only someone who is insane and obsessed would actually bring a suit of this kind basically because in most cases the amount of money that any one individual is losing is relatively small it's just that for the class as a whole it amount if you could sue as a class it amounts to a huge amount of money that banks or other institutions are basically taking home by dubious behavior. So one of the examples that I, you know, just to see what kind of class action suits aren't being brought, one of the examples is Citibank was duping um, its credit card customers into buying insurance they were never eligible to use and nobody could get back at them for it. Well, that's not entirely true. The regulators could get back at them for it. The CFPB, if it actually bothered to regulate these banks itself rather than outsourcing the regulation to, you know, the New York bar and to tort lawyers and to class action ambulance chasers could do it. What the effect of this is going to be, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, but I kind of believe this as well, is is the, the CF, CFPB is saying we are not good enough at regulating the banks and stopping them from doing evil things. And so we need to create a bunch of class action suits to do sort of regulation by proxy. And it strikes me that class action suits are kind of the worst conceivable way of doing regulation. I, I, dis I disagree thoroughly. I mean, first off, the CFPB is a single agency with a $600 million budget. If we talk about how under-resourced 
the SEC is, they get a billion dollars a year, right? I mean, the CFPB can only, I mean, and oh, they the do, SEC can regulate the banks too, as no, can any number of other institutions. No, but the, the point banks is, have a gazillion regulators. Yeah, but specifically on this front, on when it comes to consumer affairs, when it comes to protecting consumers, the CFPB only has so much reach and it does a lot. It does, especially in the area of student loans. It's been incredibly, incredibly active and in going after uh, lenders, for-profit colleges, things along those lines. It's played a, a crucial role in, in regulating that sector. Um, but there just is only so much manpower, and there's only so many of these cases that are going to show up at their door. They it, having you know I, I, having a active class action bar has classically been one way that corporate America has been kept in check. To yeah, some degree. I agree. It's one of many many routes. I do want to mention that they're not. This does not apply to all kinds of uh, forced arbitration clauses. Uh, in particular, nursing home contracts have them. Um, and a lot of employment contracts. If you work at Hooters, the Waffle House, or the Olive Garden, then you are signing, um, when you sign up for the job, you're signing this um, forced arbitration clause, which you're not reading, probably. And if you are reading, you're thinking, oh, it's all good. They trust me and I trust them, and I'll do this. And it protects the company from things like discriminatory practices. It's really kind of outrageous. Also, arbitration clauses in the end, the original idea behind arbitration clauses was essentially an agreement between equals. You had two corporations that were going into a deal and they wanted to keep their business out of the courts if possible because it was more efficient and it would be two sides with highly paid lawyers going toe to toe which may and they would agree on the arbitrators in a lot of cases not always but a lot and it would make sense this extending that to the consumer realm and to the employment realm was not the original idea and this notion that 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 lobbyists have put forward that somehow this is a benefit to consumers is absurd it has never been a benefit to consumers it was never designed as a benefit that, to consumers i mean that i think is is really the backdrop to this is that it was really only in the last as you said let's say 30 years that this started, and it was only legitimized really in the last five years because it was really legitimized by the two big Supreme Court decisions, um, one that dealt with employment contracts and then Concepcion, which dealt with AT&T and, and, and consumers. And that was really – that's really what I think this decision uh, by this new rule emerges out of is a recognition that it's – you know, it's straight kind of Chicago school – economics, right? This sort of imaginary idea that when you sign a contract, even though you've never read it and you're just some random consumer, you're agreeing to forced arbitration. It's totally divorcing that relationship from power, from reality, uh, all of these things. And so, I mean, I understand the limits of class action, but I actually, to me, this is, I mean, I'm maybe one of the few people who thinks Dodd-Frank has actually accomplished an enormous amount. And I think the the CFPB is really has done just a great job. And this is like another example of it. I mean, I think this is a potentially, I mean, the rule still has to go into effect. It has not gone into effect yet. But I think this is potentially just a great decision. If I might take devil's advocate um, again, though, with like Felix did, um, you know, I agree, class action isn't a great system either. I mean, it's theoretically possible to have good arbitrators. Um, so like the, reforming the arbitration system is another possibility. Although what would that look like? I have no idea. Well, I think the problem, but the problem with the arbitration system is not so much, I mean, the biased arbitrators is part of it. The bigger issue is that even if you have good arbitrators, it's almost never going to be worth it for an ordinary person to go through all that hassle to get back 30 bucks. Why, why can't we have a system where you go and make your complaint and you get your money back? And then the judge, if the judge is saying, wait, does this happen systemically? Like, Hey, company, you have to stop. I mean, I know I'm not a lawyer, but like, why can't that happen? I mean, well, but you, it's like, that would almost be like an administrative law judge, yeah. almost. And like, you, or, or you probably no, that could, would just but... be like a 
an arbitrator who lives inside the CFPB, say, who like yeah. because the CFPB, I mean, believe it or not, does have a lot of people who are receiving consumer complaints, and maybe they could arbitrate those consumer complaints, and maybe if they saw a bunch of complaints which were very similar, they could because they were right inside the CFPB go hmm. This is something which we ought to do something about. So it about becomes a Republican like hating on the CFPB. Well, issue. that's already happened. But you, but the other thing is, but let's we don't you don't just want them to stop. Although you do want that, you also want them to pay for what they've done. And, and the that CFPB can fine, but fine, then, and make them pay the restitution. Money back. But in yes. principle, well, they can't make them do restitution to individuals. Yes, they can, can they? and they have done. They oh, well, yeah, some of the student loan stuff. They've actually they've said this money is going back to. Well, then, then I mean that. I mean, I think the class, the virtue of the class action is also. It, just take your example of the Citibank thing. It's possible that uh, the CFPB would find that on its own, but I do think that the class action provides an incentive, a financial incentive, for people to go out and dig up examples of bad behavior. It does. It does. I mean, class action lawyers are entrepreneurial. Uh, they 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 run their own businesses. That's that's what they do. And you know, if you want to talk about the market working, actually, this is a, it is a market mechanism for regulation in a way. I mean, it's it's. I, I think there's a lot of virtue to it. It's not perfect. There are scummy class action lawyers out there. And it's I've, inefficient too. I, yeah, obviously. it takes forever. But it, the threat of you know a multi a hundred million dollar lawsuit coming out of a collection of small claims is something that companies take seriously. Okay, so we're going to move on to the numbers round just after I tell you about Casper. This is my favorite ad for Felix. He's actually, so into it. I, I actually I want to know what Casper is because I keep seeing these ads and I, I want to know what it is. So I so one of the reasons I sound a little bit frazzled today, if I feel a little bit frazzled today, is because I came straight from the airport. I flew in on the red eye. I got, according to my watch, which measures such things, I got three hours and 22 minutes of sleep on the plane, which is you know, and in in more than I ever class, it was it was not the world's greatest sleep, and this is not going to set me up well for the days to come. I'm going to be a little bit tweaked. I'm not going to think as clearly as I normally do. I'm not going to be as mindful as I normally am. You're going to think I'm, non-voting I'm, shares are terrible. I'm going to. <laughs> I'm basically not. I'm. I'm not going to be my best self. And in order to be my best self, what I need is eight or possibly eight and a half hours of really good sleep every night. And I'm completely 100% with Ariana Huffington on this one. You need your sleep. Don't be taking red eyes. They're horrible I'm things. I'm with you. I'm with doing you. that in two weeks. So, so, so don't, so the, the number one rule of getting great sleep is don't try and sleep in a coach class seat on an airplane. The number two rule of getting great sleep is go out and get yourself a brand new Casper mattress, which is made of latex foam and memory foam and is pretty much the best mattress you can get and is super cheap because you you know when you walk into those mattress stores they charge you thousands of dollars with for a bunch of mumbo jumbo and retail markups and with Casper you get neither the mumbo jumbo nor the retail market markup you just get a fantastic mattress for as little as 500 bucks um or less because if you go to casper.com slash slate money you get fifty dollars off any mattress purchase and then once you've bought it you get to sleep on it you get to sleep you, you get beautiful sleep lovely sleep sleep of fluffy pink clouds and dreams and wonderful things and when you have been sleeping on your casper mattress for 99 days 
you know what you can do? You can send it back for free and not pay a penny. The It arrives for free, no shipping. You can send it back for free, no shipping. This is a 100-day free trial, but you're not going to because you're going to be sleeping so well, you're going to be just happy. So casper.com slash slate money. Jordan, did you want to add something? I'd- Fluffy pink clouds. <laughs> Jordan is doodling Casper.com slash late money. I feel like he's he's like, I can't I, wait to get to a I'm computer. Actually, I'm in the market for a new mattress. There you go. So I'm, and I'm contemplating memory foam. So I, I feel I feel list. like I feel like Casper will get you a memory foam mattress for less. I might I might become a client soon for all, quite possibly. Okay. Numbers round. I've got a number. What's your number, Kathy? Ten percent. This is something I want Jim to riff on. He wrote a column about biased referees. And oh, yeah. my son, who is who calls all games sports balls, um, came <laughs> in the like other Ted day. Just like Ted Cruz with the basketball ring. The basketball ring. <laughs> this is like a ridiculous story, but he's 16, so we're letting him drink beer with us as long as he hangs out with us. It's Sweet. this you know, thing we do. Um, and we were watching baseball, and he was like, okay, tell me the rules. You know, He's 16. He wants to know the rules. And he's like, well, it seems to me that the – the referee could just be really biased about balls and strikes. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't happen. And then I read your 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 article. You said that in the 2007-2008 season, um, the NHL, the hockey, um, Major League Hockey, uh, the away teams received 10% more penalties than the home team did. That's outrageous. Could you say more about that? Yeah, so there's this sort of pretty clear – the reason I wrote the piece was uh, the New York Islanders, our own Brooklyn team uh, – advanced from the, the first round of the playoffs to the second round in a game that at the very end of the game, as they were, they were up, uh, uh, it was a, they were up by one goal and uh, I'm sorry, that's not true. They were down by one goal and uh, they had pulled their goalie out of the net. And so uh, the opposing team was about to fire the puck into the net and one of the Islanders dived and basically just tripped the guy. Blatant trip. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not allowed. That is not allowed. That okay. is illegal. And uh, the penalty, though, was not called. The Islanders got the puck back and almost literally went down the ice and scored. Tied the game. Oh, my God. And then won it in overtime. So what was interesting it's about this— a non-call. This, right. It was a non-call. And what was interesting about it was it was totally unsurprising for two reasons. One is that in the NHL, in the playoffs, especially in close, important games at the end of series, the number of penalties calls totally plummets. So referees just basically what they say, they swallow the whistle. But the second aspect of it was that the game took place right here in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And you had 15,000 or whatever it was, Islander fans who would have, I can't even imagine how they would have reacted if that call had been made. And I'm sure it was not necessarily a rational thing on the part of the referee, but uh, we know in the NHL that referees are much more likely to call penalties on away teams than they are on home teams. It's a pretty consistent bias, and it's actually a bias that extends across all professional sports. Fascinating. And the thing about it is that it's actually incredibly consequential. Um, in, in the NHL, penalty means you get a power play. Uh, you score on roughly 20% of your power play, so it has a big impact. Uh, in uh, May, uh, Premier League soccer, it actually, uh, away teams end up getting many fewer penalty shots, But doesn't it all huge. even out, like... For every time you play an away team game, you're going to play a home game, and then in 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 the much uh, all well, in overall, you whatever you lose in one though. game, you gain in another. Even playoffs, you well, go no, back and no, forth. No, they go. The, the home team always has one more game than, yeah. than playoffs the away always team, have basically. Odd, odd always have of, an odd yeah. number of games. Yeah, so, so it actually so it actually doesn't. And it also, I think, from, but it's it's a fifty fifty chance whether or not you are the home team and have that advantage. It's all it'll like. 
It's no, rigged it's, to the person that has home field advantage. Yeah, yeah. Which in the, which in the playoffs, which in the playoffs to, matters quite a bit, actually. Because you think. go because you get more games at home. But yeah, I think you're exactly. right that like if you like the integral over all seasons of all sports, that it kind of evens out. But the mystery way. is. But what's interesting about it is that it persists because it doesn't really seem to be a conscious thing. It's things they've they've talked about, and it actually just does seem to be largely uh, the result of. Um, referees being influenced by the crowds around them, and the other thing that's interesting is, and you say that like it's a bad thing. I feel like I feel like crowds. Uh, yeah, that's the whole point of screaming when you're in the crowd. So I wonder, if, have they ever like looked at this? At, like, I wonder if anyone's looked at this at like stadiums or, or where they have really crappy attendance. Like, well, has anyone tracked? Yeah. This so at, the 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 reason one of the reasons we know this is that so um, in Italy there was a period where teams uh, where some teams were forced to play in front of empty stadiums because of hooliganism and. And essentially, mm. the fans lost the right to go. And when they did that, what they found was that in the games that were played um, in the empty stadiums, um, the home team received no advantage at all. Basically. That's awesome. So the other thing, one last thing I'll say is that um, well, welcome to the lightning numbers round. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'll My say bad. is that the home, uh, the the fact that home teams win more games than away teams—that's a pretty consistent thing—is almost entirely due to the refereeing bias. Mm. So. Anyway. All right, so next up in the lightning numbers round. <laughs> Mine is lightning. Mine's quick. What's yours? Mine is 80%, which is the amount of Venezuela's beer that a company called Empresas Polar was responsible for producing. Unfortunately, they can't get the foreign currency they need from the government anymore uh, to actually import the ingredients necessary to brew said beer. Uh, and so Venezuela basically... Doesn't have beer. Has now. no beer. They, uh, Venezuela. Among, among the, and this is emergency. So they this can't is, even drink to keep themselves happy. This That's is so. this is especially stinging because recently the government uh, mandated a two day work week, so a five day weekend for government employees. They can't even enjoy their days off. Um, Venezuela is such a basket case right now that it can't. It doesn't even have the money to pay to print. The money. Yeah, that was that, that, was that is story. that is the most amazing thing that like even Zimbabwe always managed to find the money to print a new eighty quadrillion Zimbabwean dollar note. Um, the Venezuelans outsourced their money printing to a company in Brazil, and the company in Brazil is just refusing to print any more money because the Venezuelans have no money to pay for the money. Venezuela is the real life, you know genuine sort of oil industry bankruptcy, which is exactly. causing massive, massive yes. hardship um, for, for millions and millions of people. And we feel for them much more than we feel for the people in North Dakota. Um, Jim, what's your number? Uh, $721 million, which is the amount that uh, Barack Obama spent personally, not, I don't mean himself personally, but <laughs> Barack, the Barack Obama campaign spent on uh, the presidential uh, election campaign of 2012. And uh, the reason I mention that is because Donald Trump is now having to figure out how he is going to fund his presidential campaign. And, uh, you know, his self-funding of his of his primary campaign was a huge selling point. It was something he talked about all the time. And uh, he has come to terms, I think, with the fact that he's not going to be able to do that because even Trump or maybe especially Trump can't come up with that amount of money. And the interesting question, I think, is how that's going to affect his selling point. Now, I'm sure Trump will find some way to spin it so that it doesn't actually seem like he's doing what he's doing. But, you know, it was actually amazing how many of Trump's supporters mentioned the fact during the, the primaries that he was self-funding as a very positive and, thing. And what's more, like, it's far from clear that he's going to be able to raise anything like $700 exactly. million. 
dollars. Now Romney only raised four hundred fifty million, but of course Romney lost, and I was assuming Trump would want to go for the um, the winning number. Yeah. Basically. Also, there was a lot of uh, super PAC money that compensated for it. Romney didn't get exactly. Trump's way back. So but here, Trump gets free yeah. free press. All of the course time, he does. So I just don't know. Like he, a different thing. I just don't think he can get right, free so, press on that. I, level. I, I have a, quite a theoretical question that this is something because I've argued several times there's no way Trump could have ever self funded even if he had wanted to. What some people have said is that he could have maybe taken out debts against his illiquid properties and used that to self-fund. Does that strike anyone else as realistic other than the fact that he probably just wouldn't do it? But like, could he? Do you think anyone would actually give him a loan against like Trump Enterprises for or, or a presidential Trump's campaign? Trump's entire career has been based on getting large loans from banks. Like, but no for one, a presidential campaign? It doesn't matter. Like, it's, oh it's, money is fungible. Oh it, you know, if you're borrowing against an asset then you know this is just like the housing bubble the, the lenders are lending against the asset they're not lending against the use of funds as okay. long as the collateral is reasonable but i yeah. mean it's hard to imagine trump doing that i would think yeah. lightning yeah. round lightning round <laughs> slow lightning okay <laughs> lightning. the slowest lightning round slow. of all time i like I'm, slow I'm lightning finish slow thunder slow lightning round and we'll all comment on your number <laughs> with 25 million dollars which is my i just got back from the milken institute's global conference in los angeles where it was announced with great fair with great fanfare that Linda and Stuart Resnick. Now this is this is actually the um, the headline on the press release. I'm going to read this verbatim. Resnick Foundation pledges twenty five million dollars to the Linda and Stuart Resnick Center for Public Health. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is um, what I call billionaire philanthro whimsy, which is um, which is where a the billionaire couple, Linda and Stuart Resnick, have given $25 million basically to the billionaire Mike Milken so that he doesn't need to fund the Milken Institute for Public Health to quite the same degree that he had been up until uh, there on too. It's just philanthro money sloshing randomly from one billionaire to another. And this all takes place in the background of a conference where I swear to God, the hotel parking lot had a $67 million private jet parked in it. <laughs> <laughs> the parking lot, Bombardier had like created this private jet in the parking lot so that all of the potential buyers of the private of the jet, jet could come in and have a look around and go, this looks nice, I'll order one of these. <laughs> Rather than give $67 million to the cause of public health, I'll buy a Bombardier jet. Wow. Exactly. It was, it, was, it was a sight to behold. It was great fun. Anyway, that... Is it for us this week? Thank you so much, Jim Sorowicki. Thank you. I feel like the, the all, money, me, all money box columnists are awesome. And <laughs> this is the first and last time I'll say anything nice about Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Um, no, this this has been this has been amazing. Um, thanks to Audrey Quinn for managing to navigate the brand new slate podcasting studios in downtown brooklyn Th thank you to steve lichtai and andy bowers who are in charge of building out these podcasting studios in downtown brooklyn um and where the entire panoply network is based basically which can be found at itunes.com slash panoply so we will talk to you next week on slate money do email us and tell us what you think of this new sound Slate money at slate.com. Thank you.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.